Hello and welcome to What We Couldn't Say on Sunday. I'm here with Pastor Sam and we're going to talk about the sermon. Um, that we are. That we are. That's great. I um, just want to start off by asking you, would you remind us what your main point was? I love your high energy right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, well, um, the sermon title was Indispensable Church. And the main point was that you are indispensable to our church. Mm. And the church is indispensable to you. What does that mean? And another sub-point with that would be um, commu- maturity without community is impossible. So those were both kind of interchanged. But basically what it means is this passage is showing that individual Christianity, although we are all individually saved, we are not um, able to fully mature into all that Christ has for us without each other. Right. So this idea of like, doing online church or just like hanging out with some people here and there or you just listen to podcasts or whatever it is or I'm spiritual not religious I'm not into institutional Christianity that's impossible this text says that you need one another we need different leaders and we need one another and the beautiful thing that I just think is so awesome is every single person is gifted by Jesus through the spirit and verse 16 in chapter 4 says that when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, That's which great. is astounding because it means that each part is necessary. Mm. If each part isn't playing their role properly, then we're going to be deficient. We won't be healthy. And so that really flies against the kind of cultural mindset that, oh, like, look at that guy or that gal. She's so gifted and good at with her with speaking or this person is such a comes from a great background and, and is so you know rich or whatever it is like. No, like. Every single person in the church, whether they seem impressive or not, or essential or not, they're actually essential for our maturity. And once we ignore that and just highlight just the role of leaders or the gifted, we're going to be a deficient church. And so when we think about certain churches that are super well-known because of their leaders, man, if those leaders are not doing, verse 12, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, that church is actually going to be immature, even though they may be really gifted as preachers and they may have fantastic musical worship but if the whole church is not being used using their gifts equipped to use a gift given permission then they're going to be immature church that's right and so we want the opposite of maturity which verse 13 talks about um we want mature uh sorry we want the opposite of immaturity which is mature mature manhood or being mature and that's and what it looks like to be immature is that we're being tossed by different teachings and thoughts, like like a rag doll the text kind of talks about. Right. And then also that we're constantly falling into human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so in order to combat that, we need one another to see the truth and to grow up into the truth to make um, until we live the truth. That's good. Yeah, I think when we started off this sermon series um, – Something. The reason why we, we picked the book of Ephesians was because it was going to help us understand the gospel and the church. Yeah. And and I'm just getting, I'm growing, I'm surprised at how much my heart's being affected in my understanding of the church mm-hmm. as we go through this book. Um, three sermons now have very clearly had a main point that basically leads to the implication that you cannot do this alone. Yep. The church isn't a fun kind of ad hoc thing that we do together as Christians. 
No, the church is the creation of the gospel. Not just individuals, but the church is the creation of the gospel. Yeah. And, um, and then also turning the corner towards the people in the pews are not meant to be consumers. They're meant to be the ministers. Yeah. They're meant to be the ones who are doing things. Like, like you and me and Dale and Travis, if APC is working properly, like people should hardly know who we are. Like, like the it's like, wow, look at all these people who are just blessing us and teaching me about Jesus and showing me what he's like. Yeah, like, oh, true. this is our pastor sample. Who? Yeah. who? Yeah. Or, yeah. Like who? Like I, I've actually just been getting loved on by this person in our, yeah, in our church that's or this good. person. And it's just like, yeah. man, the idea that you go up to churches and they say on their pastor, doctor, yeah, so-and-so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, that's right. Just, just not, not the ethos I, I'm getting when, when we're when we're going through That's this. Right. And so, I think yeah, that I, I think about what we want our church to be known for, and I'd love for we talk about this over and over again. We want to be a church that is known for the way we love each other, mm-hmm. but we also want to be be a church known for the way our members do the work of ministry. Right. You know, and so I think you know we're still new to this. It's going to take time for this culture to be built. But can you imagine a year or two from now as people are come to faith and they're not baptized by us because they're being baptized by other people in the body who are mm-hmm. using their gifts and sharing the gospel and disciple, making disciples and other people who are brought in that we've never met. We weren't the connection. Right. And they're like, well, yeah, Sam and Ross are fine. But man, hey, that one person, you know, at the church, they really helped me grow. Right. And so just the, and, and this is actually the beauty, and this is how the church scaled and multiplied. It's because although there was centralization, it was decentralization. When you think about any movement, it, it gave the people, the commoners, reign. Right. Whenever everything was centralized and it was all consolidated, that's where things would grow. But when you look at different things, like uh, there's a there's one book called like the Starfish and the... Um, uh, something I forgot what it's called, but basically it, it, it shows all these different examples of organizations that kind of took off because it gave people kind of freedom. So like AA, there's like no central organization right, that like right. like controls every AA. It's kind of like hey, if you want this, you can roll with it. And obviously, you know every illustration will break down. But similarly in the church, by God giving gifts to every single person and giving them permission to use their gifts to serve, obviously under the tutelage and the leadership and the equipping of you know different leaders mm-hmm. that's when we're going to see mass change right when we see those gifts mobilized because and and, and equi- uh, activated because there's certain people who are going to be able to reach other people that i won't be able to connect so if it's all about us just being using our gifts and people come to see our our gifts being used we're going to be completely limiting our ability to reach different people that's right that's right yeah i i mean i wouldn't say we're healthy until the day comes that if somehow you or me or the other guys got taken out, yeah. would APC just continue to go? It's good. Would, we, would they continue to make disciples? Mm. Um, or would it fall apart? Yeah, it's great. Um, so I feel like so many churches when that guy retires yeah. and they were huge churches, yeah. they dwindle. There's nothing left. That's right. Um, so this was probably the most exegetically tough passage in Ephesians. Mm. Um, I heard one... I was playing golf with one member earlier this week, and he was saying, I just kept rereading it, and I could not understand it. Who? What? You were? Yeah, Mark Mark treated me to a game of golf at Hiawatha. Nice. Yeah, it was wonderful. Was he good? 
he smoked me, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Keep uh, you humble. That's there right. You go. That's right. That's so cool that he looked at the pastor. So again, for our members, please continue to look at the pastors before we preach it so that you, uh, you've already kind of stoked the fires and uh, thought through it. And you're going to just get so much more. Just like anytime you reread a powerful book, right. you just get so much more because you're, you're not no longer just trying to be familiar and you're trying to master and understand and internalize. That's but right. Anyway. That's good. That's good. That's good. And yeah, and during your sermon, you wisely punted several of these <laughs> questions to the podcast. Yeah, um, cowardly so. or wisely? We'll see. <laughs> I think wisely. And um, the first one is actually a rather controversial topic. Um, it's the interpretation of verse 11 where Paul mentions that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And, um, yeah, would you just um, explain to us what, what, what is the, the five-fold office interpretation of that text and why or why don't you buy into it? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. And as we're even talking, I'm trying to scramble. You know, you and I did a little pre-talk, but yeah. it, it's tricky because I grew, I grew up in churches where these are five very specific offices. So people are like, that person's the teacher and that person's the prophet. And I remember visiting one church that I was ministering at with a team of other uh, people when I was in a discipleship school. And there was an office and on it had a title prophet. And I think his last name was like Spunk. <laughs> which just found, sounded prophet spunk yeah it is interesting yeah so like okay ooh, he's the prophet spunk like what is he right, right. and i i want to say this and a lot of people look at these five and talk about every church has needs these five to be healthy and it's not as clear as i think some people make it right and if you look do a word study on every time the new testament uses the word prophet and old testament on prophet you're going to see that it's going to look different at different times. Mm -hmm. And the way that we understand New Testament prophets and Old Testament prophets seem very different. The right. Old Testament prophets, you definitely see a lot of heralding into the community of like how they're not being faithful to the covenant. But also you see a lot of um, future, um, and this is called foretelling. Right. And, but yet, in the New Testament, you see a little bit of the future telling. Because when we think prophecy, we immediately think about like, future events. Right. We see that Agabus has this prophetic vision about Paul being bound and so forth. Yep. And it seems like the the, the the believers around misinterpreted what that meant and what Paul should do with that. Yes. Um, so I've, I've heard one author say, God's never unclear about, like, God's never wrong when he gives a, a picture to us or a, a prophecy, but we are often wrong in the way we interpret it. Sure. I think it's helpful. But it just seems a little unique. Like, the New Testament seems to shift the way the office of the prophet works. And according to 1 Corinthians 14, it seems like anyone could prophesy who has the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Thessalonians says that you should not despise prophecy, but test it. And so it seems like prophecy is still a thing, but it's often, um, you know, speaking a word of truth within a community yeah. and applying the gospel there. So that's why some people say stuff like Francis Chan is very prophetic, even yeah. though he's never like, hey guys, on October 15th, this is going to happen, you know, sell all your goods or whatever. But it's more, which is kind of what we think of prophecy, is you got these, you know, pr prophecy doomsday sayers. Right. But then people say, like, Francis sees very clearly what's going on within the church and speaks into it. Right. With power. And I would say, like, people like TK in our church has that gift, too, mm. in some sense. Um, yeah, kind of like First Corinthians 14, where when an unbeliever walks in and they say, he's reading my secrets in my heart, and yeah. I will fall on my face and worship God. Yeah. That sounds more to me like 
right. Francis Chan. Yeah. Or TK's gift. Sure. Or, or yeah. anyone Or Spurgeon. Spurgeon. Spurgeon did that when he would be preaching and he would just call out someone even though he didn't know who that person was. Right. He'd just feel a sense. And you get you get that sometimes with preachers where someone would be like, come up to him and said, hey, did tell, someone tell you about me? Mm. You know, like, no, I just was preaching and the Holy Spirit was applying that. So, but but as we say all that, it's it's not very clear. There's not one passage that says prophets are these and no more. And it's kind of a frustrating thing, to be honest, but we have to kind of be careful readers and piece it together. So that's just office of prophet. Now, the big one here is apostle. Yeah, that is the big one. Right? Because there are certain people who talk about modern-day apostles and others who say apostles are no more because they are they, – they ended once the canon of the Bible was established and the churches was established and get move, moving, prophets and apostles were ended. Right? And yeah. they would go to Ephesians 2.20, as you and I talked about earlier before the podcast was recorded. Um, and, and for those prophets, what people mean are people who were alive when Jesus was alive and whom Jesus personally commissioned to be his authoritative representatives to establish the church. Right, right. Yes. And oftentimes when people think apostles, they immediately think about the 12 and then think about writing scripture. Yes. Um, but the tricky thing is, in the New Testament also, when you do a word study apostle, it's not clean and tidy because you even have passages um, like, is it Acts 11, where Barnabas is called an apostle? Uh, and then some people can interpret Romans 16 as even a woman, but being an apostle, I don't think I go there. I think the Greek, I lean towards the Greek saying that she was known among them rather than being an apostle. I don't know about you, but we don't have to go into that right now. Sure. Um, I think the point, though, is that these aren't like technical words in the New Testament. Like this is right. a technical term for this. These words get their meaning from their contents. Right. Like that's right. It, like that's right. This is because you see the word apostle show up in a passage. Yeah. Is it not like apostle equals? Yeah. Authoritative yeah. one commissioned by Jesus. Yeah. Because it literally only means sent one. Yeah. Like it's right. just it's a very simple commonplace word, and you have to read the context to understand what it yeah. how, what it means. So some people say that there are modern day apostles and they have lots of authority, but wouldn't be. A, you know, have authority to change scripture or anything like that. Because right. that, that is the fear that many people have. Like, if you call someone apostle, they're going to now be able to say, hey, like, do this and do that, and you have to listen. Right. Um, I don't think they're... I don't even feel like that should be on the table because, like, there's so few people who say that. You know, like, obviously you want to be careful, but, like, nobody says that. Nobody nobody argues for that. Um, but the, the kind of where I'm at is that apostles there's such a thing as like a lowercase apostle mm -hmm. so they're not writing scripture but they're fulfilling the apostolic role which Paul when you see in Romans 16 right he says like hey I, I my ambition is it 15 or 16 my ambition is to go somewhere where there's no foundation laid I think that's 15 yeah and then they make they go there and they 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 share and advance the gospel in a place where there's no foundation and so a lot of people talk about apostles being modern-day church planners, yeah. you know, pioneer missionaries going somewhere and establishing something. However, the only thing I would see that apostles, they seem to have some sort of like father, spiritual fathering kind of uh, gift where they raise up leaders and then walk alongside them and from afar also take care of them and, and watch out for them. Sure. And so Paul says not there are many guides in Christ but not many fathers and so we need more people who are going to father other leaders and care for them. Right. So that's kind of where I'm at with the apostolic gifts. So like I think that, for instance, like for myself, to make it very personal, if over the next 10 to 20 years, God has God uses me to plant more churches in places where there's no foundation laid. And obviously right now we're planting in a place where there is a foundation laid mm -hmm. by God's grace. Um, and I'm showing that and I'm raising up other leaders and I'm 
shepherding them from afar. I think some people can say Sam is functioning apostolically. Yeah. But I think because of the baggage, I, I would be afraid to be called an apostle. Yeah. I, I'd be far more comfortable yeah. saying you have an apostolic ministry. Yeah. An apostolic like ministry. Yeah, yeah. You actually have the office. Of right, the right, right, right. But, but I would also, I know of certain people who have started church networks and they planted many churches and they kind of are the epicenter of it all right. by God's grace. And they are like, I would say they're a modern day apostle. Mm-hmm. But those kind of people, their authority is relational. Yes. It's given. It's volunteered authority. So like, I just wouldn't think I could ever see someone who, quote unquote, is an apostle, just walk up to a church and be like, hey, I'm an apostle. You got to listen to me. Right. No, no. It's like a, it's an invited authority. And you even see Paul with that kind of, even though he could command people, he like persuades people and I just would always be leery of someone who walks around using that title puts it on their business card and tries to get people to tell them what to do yeah um, and so it's it seems like it's one of those gifts that over time can be seen and people can then recognize but it's not something that you just say I'm an apostle and I'm gonna start doing that like God call me an apostle right. it's more like people know when they seek one sure that's good that's good and if they're at that place then they already have authority because people have trusted them because they have a track record of character and fruitfulness that's good and you would probably say there is a little distinction though between paul and a modern day one in the sense that paul did have the real authority right yeah yeah and um a modern day apostolic minister maybe doesn't have the same authority but the same characteristics of yeah you know starting yeah communities being looked to as a spiritual that's right and I, i wouldn't say anyone's writing scripture anymore right i would definitely say the canon is closed but um yeah, but it, it, it's just tricky because there's some apostles, some some passages like Jude, books weren't, weren't written by apostles. Yeah. So that just can't. They're, they're typically, the the idea of wh- who an apostle is is that they what is they seen the risen Lord, They've seen the risen Lord. They've been personally commissioned by Him. Yeah. And those are generally the two. That yeah. I'm familiar and then with. typically you see like they have a fruitful ministry, like their people are following them, and there's some sort of whatever. extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit through right. them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But but then you also hear of other apostles that actually you don't hear about much in the New Testament, mm-hmm. you know, and so it, you know if you look at Barnabas, you know it's a son of encouragement, but yet it seems like he was sent out to do pioneering kind of work too. So he's functioning kind of like Paul did, right? In certain circumstances. So I mean, we can go down to the list of, of the different ones, but I just would say that it's a little tricky. Every time you look at a list in the New Testament that goes over gifts or offices, it's tricky because they're all not conclusive. Sure. So if you look at gifts, you can look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and they have differences in them and overlap. Yeah. And so it just doesn't seem like any of these passages are saying like these are all. Because notice what is not listed in these fivefold that you, sh- you should see in every church. Uh, deacons. Deacons. Yeah. So you don't see deacons here. Right. And obviously later on you see in First Corinthians, uh, you see the same author, Paul, write about deacons and pastoral epistles. Right. Yeah, it seems to be a little more open-ended than this yeah. is technically the list. Right, um, right. Which gives, I think, more space for us to be more charitable to different churches that have different church governance and ecclesiology. Right. However, right. we have Not the full church now. Yeah, right. we have the full, church, full, full scripture now, and so we should try to piece all of it together, try to be most faithful. But, I mean, there are churches that don't have the office of deacon, but they function, they have people who functioning diaconally. Right. And I think anywhere you go, whether people use a title or not, healthy churches are going to have each of these positions when gifts or quote-unquote anointings operating. 
Yeah. But then when you have a church that has only certain, so like certain churches are heavy teachers, but they have very few evangelists. Mm-hmm. And so evangelists and other as an office, we see Philip the evangelist, and then you see that Paul's called calling uh, Timothy to do the work of evangelists. But it's not a lot more in the text. Sure. So you can't be. I think people need to be very nuanced and reserved in their comments of what the, these positions should look like. Yeah. And some you can say more. Like there's more written about a teacher and a prophet than there is an evangelist. Right. But I, I just don't hear a lot of nuance when people talk about it. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe one one uh, takeaway would be that no no leader no structure is better than the people. Like, um, mm. like I would much rather have a flawed hierarchy in the church and have a people who are sold out for Jesus sure. and full of the Spirit sure. than technically get all this stuff right yeah. and then not have a people who are filled with the Spirit of God. That's good. Um, and, and that's, I think, we should be our first focus is are we godly? Yeah. And then also, mm. are we, are we, is our church reflecting the, the way the New Testament seems to talk about? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and, and, and I think this text would argue unless you have those five roles clicking in all cylinders and everyone using their gift, you won't be healthy. Yeah. And you need those. So it's kind of both and. Right. But, you know, there are churches who have really good structures, but they're dying spiritually. Right. You know, and you have other churches who have a different kind of structure, but because they're filled with the Spirit and they love Jesus and they love people, they're functioning in those ways. Even, you know, so, so a church that would be strictly elder-led and elder-governed yeah. and not having any congregational, quote-unquote, official input for anything they can actually still be very effective if they are very humble and they're listening to the people yes and so they're presbyterian churches that we would differ in the way they do structuring but yet function very similar to ours because they just love the lord and they're so humble and they they care for their people that's right yeah that's right yeah. Amen. that's good so well, that was a lot on that awesome that wasn't conclusive. There's a lot more. And if you have questions and you want to go into further resources, there is no shortage of resources. No, there's you know? not. And especially a lot of people in the missio- missiology, sorry, in the missional kind of movement. you got people like um, uh, Herschel, shoot, what's his name? Uh, the Forbidden Way, not Forbidden Way, Forgotten Ways. Um, he talks a lot about the fivefold ministry and how every church needs it. Mm. And so... Yeah, I think that that's something that we can't forget is that we do need these kind of functions in every church. Yeah. You know, and if you are, if we are heavy on certain levels, we want to pray for God to bolster up. But it's unhealthy whenever we get a church that only has a certain kind, mm-hmm. which is why it's so dangerous to have such a alpha leader because they often attract those who are like them. Right. So over time, they can be flop, flop side. So if you got a really prolific teacher like John Piper, he's going to attract a lot of teachers. Yeah, and a lot of they, very intellectual. That's right, people, and they and that's a gift, but they may lack evangelists, right, or apostolic pioneer kind of people, right. So we, we just got to be careful. Um, yeah, and maybe where we're coming down right now is we're not trying to multiply church offices; we're trying to multiply and have diverse gifts within our body. Yeah, that's right. Because we really only have the office of shepherd, deacon, and then priesthood believer, and then within that we want there to be a diversity of yes evangelists. Apostolic, yeah. apostolic types, um, and then all the other gifts we see in the New Testament. Yeah, I think it's good. Yeah, that's good. It's helpful. It's great. The um, next one is doozy. Yeah, we need to move on to one. Um, I'm not sure if anyone caught this in the sermon on Sunday, but at, at right in the middle of this passage, uh, Paul quotes Psalm 68. Um, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, 
one problem, I'm going to call it a problem, with this quotation. Let me read it so that see if people can pick it up. Okay, let's see. Let's see if they pick it up. It's towards the end. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, verse, okay, verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Receiving gifts. Receiving among gifts. Men. Yeah. Receiving gifts among men. And okay. verse 8 in chapter 4 in Ephesians says, and he gave gifts to men. So the Apostle Paul changed Holy Scripture? Yeah, that's the question. Yeah, so, so here's, here's the broader topic using this passage is, what do you do when the New Testament authors quote differently in an Old Testament passage? Right. Or any author quotes a previous author in a way that's not word for word the same as that previous author. Right. Do we now burn our Bibles? You know, are, are we, is our scripture broken? What are they doing? Well, one thing to be sure, Paul definitely knew that passage better than we did yeah. in his context. And Jews who were listening would have probably be familiar with that passage. So if he's doing anything sneaky, everyone would know and pick it up. Right. So maybe they had a category for interpretation and using the Old Testament that we don't because we're mm. so literal. Because our understanding of quotations is it needs to be in quotes. Right. And if you change that, you're, you're yeah. misrepresenting that person that's that right. you're quoting. That's right. And that's more of a Western modern concept of quotation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. When we see authors quote in this this world, it seems like they're a lot more loose mm -hmm. than we would be comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of instances in the New Testament, you, you rarely see – well, you, I'm not going to say rarely, but it's quite – often that you see a quotation in the Old Testament that's not exactly the same. Yeah. It's not it's not unusual for the quotations to to be different. A lot of times people will quote from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of right. the Hebrew scriptures. Yep. They'll quote from other translations. Sometimes they'll even combine texts together. It's called from conflation. They'll yeah. put they'll put two different texts together and they'll kind of like bleed into one another. And no one seems to have a problem with that. Yep. It's not so when we see this, I think one reaction we can do is we can get scared and think, oh, is is the Bible untrustworthy? Yeah. But that that just isn't really um, in line with the way the New Testament tends to use the Old Testament. Right. It's it's not making a mistake and it's not trying to mislead. Yeah. Um, that that quotes alterations in quotes are normal. And I say it actually serving purpose yeah yeah it's just, it's, here's the pushback to what we what the gut reaction is is perhaps we are we are forcing upon the bible categories and expectations that the bible does not hold it in itself right that their culture their contacts and the way they handled text and they handled um stories and truths um they did it differently than our western context and so when we see that it, it jive it, it jolts us it, right throws us off right right but we have to want to see not are they being consistent with us but are they being consistent within themselves that's yes. the key and yes. that's what you want to do when you want to be a careful reader of any ancient text is are they being consistent within the rules that they already are playing by not our rules that's good right that's good yeah because we want to read the bible on its terms right. rather than 2018 or american terms sure. so that we're understanding it part part of interpreting the bible is getting into the language and culture yeah. of the Bible 
and then and then understanding it on its own terms before we apply it yeah. to our world in our time. That's so good. Yeah, yeah. So like, let's get let's use some examples um, from New Testament authors quoting Old Testament. Yeah. Like so, think about Psalm twenty-two. Yes. Jesus says, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Right. And he's doing an Aramaic. Yeah. And then yet, when you read Psalm 22, you see so many connections to the cross. And that you see some things in Psalm 22, you're like, that doesn't seem like Jesus is going through. Mm-hmm. And then, so this is the same challenge. I don't want to say problem. I think it's only a problem if you don't understand. Challenge we see with any time the New Testament authors uh, show that Jesus is f- fulfilling Old Testament passages. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that you, you just brought up very helpfully, the first step you should always take if you're trying to interpret a New Testament use of the Old, which is understand the Old Testament quotation first in its Old Testament context, Mm -hmm. rather than trying to figure it out without referring to that context. Because the Apostle Paul is trying to bring to mind Psalm 68 when this quotation comes up. He's he's referring to it. Kind of like if I were to say a movie quote, nothing's come to mind right now. I wouldn't just want you to just consider those words. I want you to consider them in, in the context of the movie to, right, right, to right. illuminate what I'm trying to say. That's right, that's right. And, um, and he has the same thing in mind. And so um, I think the first mistake you have to make when trying to interpretate, interpret Old Testament quotations in the New Testament is we don't consider the context yeah. that they're coming from. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so what is he doing in Psalm 68? Psalm 68 has this victorious kind of language and context right right and so in what we realize is that when jesus descended in his incarnation and then died on the cross and was exalted in his exaltation he was he ascended and we would also probably argue that in one sense his when he was on the cross there was an exaltation too right right uh that's a little tricky but he was in his exalted in his ascension he was exalted at the right hand of the father and so that that's like the ultimate victory Yes, and so some people call this like near far prophecy, um, or partial fulfillment. This idea that you know Psalm sixty eight is speaking of a reality, but the fullness of that reality may not be only seen until later on in the New Testament. Right. Um, so in one sense there is a victory, but then yet there is a um, the fullness of that victory will only be seen later on. Right. And so it's kind of like this idea that the prophets or anyone who's writing Old Testament is seeing like a mountain range. And from their vantage point, they all look one way. But if they were to actually get there, they're seeing the differences, and they're actually not connected. Like they, they like if you see a mountain range from a certain angle, it looks connected and all together. It looks like one mountain, right? But as you get closer to it, and so this is kind of the idea of progressive revelation. Yeah. As history unfolds, Old Testament authors who are just seeing things in, in glimpses, and Hebrews even says they like. Even the angels, they long to look at these things. So they're right. they're getting little crumbs like, hey, there's a seed coming. But what's a seed? Who's the seed? What's going on there? Right? It, um, and, and then later on, and then you even see, like Isaiah, it talks about the servant. Right? Yeah. And yet the suffering servant. Yeah, it just, it, so it looks like all these authors are just seeing glimpses. And then as history unfolds, there's, we can see a fuller picture. Yes. Hence why like most most people, if they just read the Old Testament, they did not realize that Jesus was going to have two comings. 
Right. But right. now in hindsight, we can see those in the text. But from their vantage point, they only saw one angle of it. So they didn't see that. that that's why Jesus blew their categories of coming in as a suffering servant. Yeah, they were expecting a liberator that's right. to, to defeat the Roman Empire. He came as a humble servant to save yep. his sinners from their own selves. That's good. Um, but yeah, going, going back to Psalm 68, it is a psalm about the Lord who is Jesus, and your testament identifies as Jesus, um, reigning over his enemies, defeating his enemies, scattering his enemies. Mm. And um, mm. in verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among them, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. That's good. What, what, I, what I'm seeing here in this, in this psalm is it sounds like the Lord is becoming like a human king mm. who in that era would reign over other earthly kings. He'd be the king of kings. Mm. And this gift is the idea of tribute. So in, in the Old Testament, when you as a king were sovereign over another king, that nation would have to send you its wealth mm -hmm. attacked. That's right. That's right. And so this, this seems to me... To me, to be talking about that, mm. um, you can see the idea of tribute come up later in the psalm. Um, it comes up in verse 30. Um, Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls, with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the people who delight in war. So there's the other kings who want to be the king of kings, but mm. really it's the Lord who is the king of kings. Mm. And that's being expressed by them sending tribute to him. That's how I would take it, mm. that he's receiving gifts from people. Mm -hmm. And that's without even considering Ephesians 4. That's just yeah. considering on its yeah. own terms. I think that's, that's, right. that's the first step. Yeah. Um, the second step is you have to interpret the text now. In, and I mean interpret the context of the New Testament passage without right. taking into account the Old Testament passage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so what would you say, Sam, is the context of Ephesians 4 and that this quote is showing up in? And what, what, is, what is the context? Yeah, it seems like because he ascended, he has now put to shame all earthly rulers and spiritual rulers. Right. So you see that in Ephesians 6, it talks about our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, against powers and, and uh, authorities, against the cosmic powers. And then in Colossians, it talks about what, what Christ did on the cross, um, disarm the rulers and authority, authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Over them in Him, verse fifteen, right? Which sounds a lot like Psalm sixty-eight, right? And so the lordship, the lordship. That's right. Yeah. And in His triumph, He not only receives their gifts of His their worship in their lives, right? And you also see that in a lot of passages in Isaiah where they are like coming to the mountain, the Lord, and giving gifts, right? But also this kind of flip of the script in one sense is that this benevolent King is also giving gifts to mm. men. Sure. And so it's not contradicting, but it's kind of expanding and right. showing more. He right. receives them, but he actually he blesses them too. Amen. And bestows it. And then we see that throughout Ephesians, this context that God is rich in mercy, rich in glory, and that, that he is rich in power, and he's bestowing this onto the church, and we're receiving it. Oh, man. That, uh, well, I, well, I just started seeing that connection. So in chapters 1 through 3, just all, it just over and over shows all that he's lavishing upon us. Yeah. And so, boom, Psalm 68, he's using that. And instead of them, him just merely receiving gifts like a, like a dictator, he's just benevolent king who just comes back and gives right. and lavishes upon undeserving people who were rebel, rebels. Right. So it, so it sounds almost like Paul states it ironically. 
um, to show, to contrast what kind of king we have compared to the human king that we've yeah. grown to expect to be what a king is. Mm. Oh, he takes my wealth. He takes my resources. Yeah. No, we actually serve a king who gives us his wealth right. and gives us his resources. And we wouldn't, and, and if Paul didn't make this tweak, we wouldn't see that glorious truth here. That's good. He, so, so he's really trying to show us more. Yeah. He's trying to show us more um, of what what's already there. That's good. Um, and, and I think a question to ask is, you know, can that helps it is can we see that trajectory even in the Old Testament text itself? Mm. Do we see it heading in that direction in Psalm 68? Mm. And if we go back to that verse, uh, Psalm 68, I think it's is it verse 11. Um, mm. No, 18. You send it on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. That's, that's awesome. Even among the rebellious. Yeah. Which is chapter two in Ephesians. Right. We were dead in our trespasses following the prince of power of the air. Right. Right. We, were, we weren't just innocent bystanders or helpless people calling for aid to a benevolent king. We were actually against this benevolent king. Yeah. And then he transformed us. And then instead of destroying us or even subjecting us into his rule mercifully, he now bestows us sonship. Right. Right. Yeah. And even in this verse, it says... That the Lord is dwelling among those rebels. That's right. So He's giving gifts. He's giving the gift of His presence Himself. To them. And yeah, it, and you can draw that from from this verse without even looking at That's Ephesians right. four. And then even when you look at Jeremiah thirty one or other uh, uh, eschatological texts in the Old Testament, where it says like He will be with Him, they will be His people, He right. will be their God. And then you see that also in Revelation twenty one. Yeah. So the idea of a gift giving God, yeah. gift giving sovereign, just doesn't seem to me to be a twisting of this text. That's great. Um, it seems to me to be the trajectory of the text, mm. and and the apostles interpreting this text and seeing it go that way, and he's making it clearer for us, not trying to confuse us, not trying to obfuscate the text, not trying to twist the text. Obfuscate. What a word, huh? Yeah, it's a good word. Remind <laughs> me what it means again. Obscure, Obscure it. Yeah, yeah. Obscure yeah. It. yeah. He's, not, he's not. He didn't make an oops. Mm-hmm. He didn't make an oops. Like, oh, that's right. And and it's pushing against this idea that oh, the Old Testament God is this one kind of God, hmm. and the New Testament God is like totally different. Yes. No, 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 no. Same. Exactly. Totally the same. Exactly. That's such a good man, guys. If you didn't walk away with anything, make sure you look at verse eighteen and look at that second part that Paul leads out. Even among the rebellious, mm. like that the Lord God may dwell there. Right. It's not like, oh, you dwell where you're at and I'll send you something. It's like, I'm going to be right there among you. Like what a gift that he can give. Not only does he give gifts and like spiritual gifts and so forth, but he gives his gift of himself. Right. What more can you ask of someone? Amen. Amen. And, and for us to get that, we would have to go back and study Psalm 68. Yeah. Um, he, when, he's, when he does that little quotation, he's referencing what's around it. Mm-hmm. He, it means for us to, to consider this and know this. Yeah. And we don't memorize a Psalter like a lot of first century Jews did, which means we have to be good at reading it. That's right. And we have to be good students of the word. Yeah. And it takes hard thinking and, and, and it takes just being familiar with the text. And mm-hmm. I would just encourage everyone just to give themselves a Bible reading. Yeah. <laughs> give, I, know, I know you are so, so busy, but there, there's treasures you can see there if you give yourself to just understanding and knowing and absorbing the scriptures in your mind and heart. And this is a good exercise to remember when we see something that doesn't jive in the Bible, 
it's usually because we're missing it. Hmm. And when I say usually, I'd say it's always because we're missing it. Right. I remember when I first started to see contradictions in the text or see differences in the Gospels or what, oh, this one had, you know, two donkeys or this one had one, whatever it is, like any kind of discrepancies, I'd immediately been like, oh, the Bible is not what it is. Right. And I went through a season when I was actually born again Christian that I only took the the red letters as God's word and everything wow. else was like, seriously, I did that for like six months or more. Wow. And, and the thing is... Um, I'm going to loop it into this passage is, is two things. One, we need the body, according to Ephesians chapter 4, to, to basically help each other from being, not being deceived. Yes. And that's why we need community because we're all deceived about something. Yes. And so we need others to be able to spot it out because remember, when you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. Amen. So I need people to do what Paul did for Apollos. Or no, sorry. What, what's a couple? Aquila, Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah, Aquila did, and Priscilla did for, did for Apollos. Oh, did for Apollos. Right. That's and right. They that's brought right. him to the side and they instructed him in the way and I needed that. And that's what people did for me, um, whether it's through indirectly through podcasts or books or physically. And so we need each other to do that for each other because none of us are the perfect judges of ourselves or of our hearts and what we're doing, what we think. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, yeah. And I, and I personally, I've received correction from APC members mm. and, and Sam and I were open to that. Yeah, we we don't we don't believe that's because we have seminary degrees that yeah. that we have everything right. Um, I got corrected like two or three times this week. Good, it's a good week. That's yeah. great, man. It's a good week. They yeah, spoke so, the truth in love. Yeah, feel feel free to um, mm-hmm. to pull us aside and instruct us. Yeah, in 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 the way. But the um, attitude that I wanted to highlight in this passage is when you see something in scripture, are you going to immediately assume you're right and the scripture's wrong, hmm. or is it a humble attitude of you know, I have a track record of being deceived. I have a track record of being wrong. Yeah, I'm imperfect. I've thought we're all a lot of wrong things. Yeah. Maybe I'm missing something. And yeah. I think the postmodern mindset and, and our post-Christian mindset in our churches in the West especially is, a, oh, I know better. Right. Like I'm no longer one of the ancients who need religion to understand how the world works and how weather and mm-hmm. like I, I've, I'm enlightened. Right. And, and the question is, is are we the masters of this book yeah. or will this book master us? That's good. And, and you can't have it both ways. If you want God to just have his hand on you, if you want God to just guide you and direct you intimately, mm. this book needs to master you rather than the other way around. What is, let's end on this. What is Augustine's famous quote about understanding and belief? You must believe in order to understand. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's this paradox. You know, and over the years, as I've studied the scripture and over and over, I've run into things that I thought were contradictions. The Bible has come true over and over again. Mm. And so there was a day where I said, you know, I believe the Bible is authoritative. It is the word of God and it's perfect, um, provided it's being translated correctly from the, the manuscripts. And, which but, we have. Yeah, which we have. Um, and uh, you mean, the, what do you mean? The manuscripts. We we have we have lots of manuscripts. manuscripts. That's right. Yeah, we don't have the autographs, but better, we have lots of manuscripts. Better that are accurate reflections yeah. of the autographs. Yep. And um, but yet, I've just been wrong, wrong over and over again. Mm-hmm. And the text is shown to be true. I just was an, not a careful reader. I didn't understand the context. Mm-hmm. And over and over again, so I trust it. Whenever I see something that quote unquote is wrong, I'm like, man, what am I missing? Right. Amen. And I hope we all have that same attitude too. That's you good. Know, I think that honors God. Yep. Yeah. Amen. This was a great conversation. Guys, I, uh, you know, church, we hope that this is helpful and helps instruct you because you're going to see the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament because that's 
what they're doing often, they're unpacking the Old Testaments. Hundreds of quotes. Yeah. Hundreds of quotes. So you, yeah. you got to know how to do it. If you're so if you don't get this, you're not going to get it. Um, yeah. One book that was helpful for both of us, especially for Ross because he took a class, is Greg Beal's book on New Testament use of the Old Testament. Yep, handbook. Handbook on the New Testament. Handbook, yep. And then also Beal wrote a book with D.A. Carson, and it's, it's kind of basically a commentary. Yes. So like when I was doing my prep for the sermon and I looked at this passage in Ephesians 4, it had like pages and pages and pages on Psalm 68 sure. going over. So that, that exercise could be really helpful. I would not commend that resource to you as a casual resource, but if you really want to go deep, that'd be helpful because I just skimmed parts of it because it was yeah. so long. I was like, my goodness, they were thorough. Yep. So, yeah. And if you don't have time for any of that, just ask yourself three questions. What is the context of the Old Testament passage? What is the context of the New Testament passage? And is there a trajectory That's good. that relates them together, especially one that travels through the cross? Amen. Yeah. Amen. All right. That was good, brother. Yeah. Hopefully yeah, you guys absolutely. are blessed. Thanks so much, guys. And uh, this happy is Halloween. Happy Halloween. And what we mean by that. Or Reformation Day, whichever. We, we really hope that you utilize the once in a year opportunity where people are coming to your lore which is socially acceptable for them to come to you and you can greet them and they you can make connections that will open up the door for future conversations and you get to go to their door that's right and so let's take a holiday that has been used for wickedness and been celebrated by darkness yeah. and redeem it for the cross amen yeah amen thanks amen.